been, uh, we've been going through the doctrine of God this semester. Uh, next semester, we'll look at the doctrine of man, uh, consider uh, things like uh, marriage and uh, human sexuality and, uh, and the fall and all kinds of uh, different things that kind of fall under the rubric of anthropology. But this uh, particular semester, we're doing theology proper, that is, what it is that we believe uh, about God and God's works within uh, the world. So we've considered uh, sovereignty, providence. Uh, we've considered the doctrine of the Trinity. Last week, we talked about Christology. We kind of began, and we're going to close out that conversation this week. And uh, so last week, we talked really to try to build a defense around uh, the, the idea uh, that Jesus is fully God and fully human, uh, and that his deity and his humanity, uh, they occur within one person. And uh, so that was the idea that we developed last week, and we kind of just walk through the Scriptures. And then this week what we want to do is just kind of uh, flesh that out, no, no pun intended, uh, flesh that out a little bit more and, uh, and look in particular about how some of the, uh, the early, uh, some of the early uh, heresies developed within the history of the church and how we see parallels uh, in uh, our modern world. And so I want to begin where we kind of ended last week, which is kind of talking about the idea that, uh, that this is not some tertiary, peripheral uh, sort of doctrine. This is not something that we can just s- sort of uh, dismiss and say that it is incidental or insignificant that uh, really want to, to demonstrate the idea that this is one of those threads that if you pull it, the sweater will completely unravel. Or it's a, if you will, it's a load-bearing wall of the house. If you tear down this particular wall, the whole house is going to, uh, to crumble. So there are certain doctrines that we would say are central to the faith, and I think this is uh, one of those. And historically, the church has said this is one of those. And so I want to look at where we ended last week, which is why humanity is necessary, why the idea that Jesus is fully human uh, is necessary, and then also why the deity of Christ is fully uh, is necessary. Why it's necessary for us to be able to confess both that Jesus is fully human and uh, fully God. And so, uh, we talked about this last week. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that audio. But uh, first, so why is it necessary that we confess that Jesus is fully human? So we talked about a few reasons. The first one, kind of a, 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 a thematic statement for. Uh, understanding his humanity is the idea that Jesus could only assume, or I'm sorry, could only redeem what he had assumed. Jesus can only redeem what he has assumed. If he has not assumed humanity, he can't redeem humanity. If he hasn't taken on humanity, then he can't uh, redeem uh, humanity. We developed that last week. The next one is for representative obedience, that he might, as a human, fully obey God's law and God's expectations uh, for us. And so uh, to be our representative before uh, God is uh, another reason that it's necessary that Jesus is fully human. Next, to be a substitute and a, uh, and a sacrifice. We talked about Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So to be a substitute and a sacrifice, it was necessary that Jesus be fully human. Next, to be the only mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So in order to be the only mediator between God and man, uh, if you will, he has to, he's a, he's a translator. He has to speak both the language of divinity and the language of humanity in order to be that mediator. Uh, and then to fulfill the original mandate for man to reign over creation. The original creation mandate that uh, Yahweh has in the garden, the expectation is that mankind would rule and reign and exercise dominion over the earth. And so in order uh, to, to fulfill that expectation, Jesus has to be fully human. And then lastly, that we saw that this was explicitly connected to, to false teaching, false teaching within the early church, which denied the humanity of Christ. First, uh, First John chapter 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So those are a few reasons why it's necessary for us to hold tightly to the idea that Jesus is fully human. 
But we talked about, we've, we've done this illustration a number of times. You're probably tired of it if you've been coming for a while. But the illustration of uh, kind of pulling two ends on a cord, kind of playing tug of war. And what happens when somebody lets go of one, pulls too hard in one direction, uh, the chaos that can result of that, whether you're playing near a mud uh, puddle or something like that, whatever it is, you're playing tug of war and somebody pulls too hard to one side and lets go of the other. And so even as we pull on this side that Jesus is fully human, we can't let go of the other side, Jesus being fully God. There's going to be chaos that results from that. These are some of the reasons why it's necessary for us in confessing Jesus' full humanity that we not let go of the idea that Jesus is also fully divine. And, uh, and so a few reasons why his deity is necessary that we talked about last week. First, only God can pay uh, the penalty only God could pay the penalty that man uh, owes. Uh, if Christ is not divine, then all the glory in the work of salvation doesn't go to God alone. It goes to some degree to man, if it's, whether it's 1% or half a percent or 10% or whatever it might be. The degree to which Jesus is not God is the degree to which something other than God gets credit, gets glory. And, uh, and the Scripture screams the idea that God alone will be glorified. And so that's one of the reasons that we have to hold to the deity of uh, Christ because only God can pay the penalty and only God is worthy of uh, the glory. Uh, if he's not fully divine, then he's not worthy of our worship. Uh, in fact, to worship him would be blasphemy, and yet he receives it. And so he's either fully divine or he is a blasphemer. He is one who receives worship that is not due to him. That's another reason. Uh, another one if Christ is not divine, then the Scriptures are not true, right? The Scriptures uh, explicitly talk about the deity of Christ, and so if He's not actually divine, then the Scriptures are not true, they're not trustworthy, they're not faithful, and thus we can't uh, count on them, bank on them. If He's not divine, then His sacrifice was not sufficient to save us from our sin. So we see kind of the same idea from humanity. He had to be human in order to offer a sacrifice, but He has to be divine in order for that sacrifice to be sufficient, uh, for us. Um, if he's not divine, then he cannot represent God to man and man to God as our mediator, the other side of that mediator sort of thing. The idea he has to speak both languages, the language of humanity, the language of deity in order to translate, in order to be a mediator uh, for us. And then lastly, if he's not divine, then he cannot reveal the image of the Father nor restore us to the image of God. So you see how uh, in light of all of these things, it's necessary for us, although we can't understand, uh, none of us in this room can fully comprehend how Jesus could be fully God, fully human, and not be two separate persons. It's not human Jesus and divine Jesus. He's one person. He is just Jesus. And yet these two uh, natures uh, occur simultaneously within the same person. So we might not be able to understand fully or comprehend all of the, uh, the implications of this, but we see how it's necessary that we don't let go of one or the other. Uh, we don't stress one to the neglect uh, or the denial of, uh, of the other. And really everything for us is going to hinge on really one word. So how we understand the nature of the deity and humanity of Christ, how we understand how these two things can kind of fit together within one person is going to really hinge on one word. And uh, in the Greek, it is uh, the word agenita, agenita. All right, it's from John 1.14. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But that word, again, is the word that we translate as became. It's a being uh, verb. What does it mean that he became flesh? That's really the, the crux of what we're going to talk about uh, in our time together today is to look at how different people have interpreted that one Word, One word in the Greek, and all of this hinges on it. All of the, the, the things that we said were essential, all of the reasons why this is necessary, all of this is going to hinge. Really, you could put all of the weight on this one word. What does it mean that he became flesh? Did he become sinful nature? That's how Paul is going to use the word flesh uh, throughout uh, his epistles. Is that what it means? Does Jesus become sinful uh, or does it mean that he relinquishes his deity? When it says the word became flesh, does that mean he ceased to be God? I talked about that a little bit that week. Does it mean that he took on a human body? 
but not necessarily a human mind or soul or spirit or something like that. So what does it mean? When John is writing, the word became flesh, what does he mean by that? What are the implications of that, uh, that statement? And so we talked before, when we talked about the Trinity, we talked about there was a very famous church council where they kind of articulated the boundaries of Christian belief as it relates to the Trinity. Anybody remember what that council is called? Nicaea, all right? Nicaea, which took place uh, in the 300s. And, uh, and so there is this uh, heresy that's threatening the church called Arianism uh, by a bishop named uh, Arius. And Arius taught the idea that Jesus was uh, not fully God, that he was a God-like being. He was like God in certain ways, but he was created. He was a created being. He was the first of all God's creations, and everything else was created through him, but he himself also is created. This was a teaching that was threatening the, uh, the unity of the church within the Roman Empire, and so Constantine calls this council together, and they condemn Arianism. They say that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Jesus is fully God. So ever uh, from that point on, for the next hundred and something years, uh, the, the church is really uh, pretty well grounded in the idea that Jesus is fully God. In fact, if you were to ask somebody in the late 300s, the early 400s uh, of the church, if you were to ask them, is Jesus fully God or fully human, they would have more likely kind of landed on the idea that Jesus is fully God. We might not understand his humanity. It's kind of opposite of our culture today, right? If you just ask anybody on the street, you ask them uh, about Jesus' humanity or deity, what do people mostly default towards? They mostly default towards just thinking he's an exalted human, right? He's a good human. He's a good teacher. He's a good prophet, something uh, like that. Well, in the early church, in the 300s and 400s, it was the exact opposite. They really were convinced that Jesus is fully God. They did not understand, though, how he could be fully uh, human. Part of that is because of this Greek Platonic thought. We've talked about it uh, before. Uh, in, uh, in Greek philosophy with uh, Aristotle and Plato and uh, these philosophers, there is this idea that anything that is material is bad by its very nature. So something that's immaterial is good. Something that's spiritual is good. Anything that's fleshly or bodily or uh, material or physical is by its very nature bad. And so with all of this residue of this what's called platonic thought or dualistic thought, with all of this residue uh, within the, the surrounding culture, there was this idea that if Jesus is fully God, which we've already confessed the church has landed on that in light of Nicaea, if that is true, then kind of there's a punt we're going to punt on the subject of Jesus' humanity. We don't understand exactly how that might, uh, that might flesh out. And, uh, and so that's what's, uh, that's what's going on within uh, the early church is this sort of wrestle. And uh, along the way, there are these false teachings. As, as the early church is trying to wrestle with how can, how did the word become flesh? How is Jesus fully God and yet somehow interacts with humanity? Uh, what is that? And so this is before they've articulated what we talked about last week in terms of uh, the, the fullness of his deity and the fullness of humanity existing in one person. As they're kind of wrestling with all of this, there are a number of teachings that kind of come up within the church that kind of grow up organically. Different people are teaching different ways of understanding how deity and humanity are interacting in the person of, uh, of Jesus. And by and large, these persons that have since been condemned as heretics, as teaching a false, a deficient, uh, an insufficient, uh, heretical view of Jesus, by and large, they were not setting out uh, to be heretics. Like, they didn't wake up in the mornings, you know what I want to do? I want to create a heresy. 2,000 years from now, I want people to use my name in a derogatory manner. That's not what they're doing. They're trying to be faithful. They're reading the text. It says the Word became flesh, and they're trying to figure out and interpret what does that uh, mean. And uh, so they're not like some of the modern uh, heretics that you might think of. They're not like a uh, Richard Dawkins who has like this axe to grind against Christianity. He, he, he's just a, uh, an angry atheist. They're not like Bart Ehrman who's just kind of feels like he's been burned by the church and so uh, he's, he's denied the deity of Christ. And They're not like that. In general, they're, they're trying to be faithful in their own regards, uh, but, uh, but they are kind of moving well beyond what Scripture teaches into something that is actually going to be detrimental 
So one of the things, as we talked about, uh, even with the reason I wanted to start with the, the, the idea that it's necessary for us to confess his deity and his humanity is for us to see how practical this is. That this is not just abstract, academic talk. It's not just something that you learn in seminary, but it really doesn't have any effect on your life. Uh, that we can see that the, the very gospel is at stake here. If Jesus is not fully God, if Jesus is not fully hum, uh, human, then you're not fully saved. So we see there, there's a practical element here that goes to the very heart of our faith. That's why these people were condemned. It wasn't because the church was mean and they just wanted to persecute these people or anything like that. It was because they recognized that if you buy into these teachings and the implications of these teachings, then your own hope is going to be threatened. Your own trust is going to be uh, threatened. So let's get into some of these, uh, these views that came up in uh, the early church, most of them coming up within the 4th uh, and 5th uh, and centuries. And uh, so the first one we want to talk about is the Ebionites, the Ebionites. Ebionites, probably pretty similar to what we would think of today as just secular thought on, uh, on who Jesus is. And so they, they just held to the idea that Jesus was just this superior man, all right? He was kind of like the, the uber man, all right? He was the ultimate man, but he was just a man, not divine at all. So there's a rejection of the deity of Christ. There's a rejection of the virgin birth. Uh, so it's, it's similar to what you would read if you're reading something that is kind of liberal theology uh, today, uh, that he's just a, a good teacher. By the way, um, a lot of the early uh, Muslims ran into a number of Ebionites, uh, and, uh, and that, is, uh, that has greatly influenced Islamic uh, theology on uh, the nature of Christ in, uh, in, uh, in Islamic theology and Muslim theology as it relates to Christ. He is just this great prophet, this great teacher, and, uh, and a lot of that is because of the influence of uh, certain Ebionite uh, traders uh, come, uh, traders like those who trade, not like a Benedict Arnold sort of thing, but those who were trading uh, through uh, Mecca and Saudi Arabia uh, and so forth. And so that's the, the first uh, Ebionites, Ebionitism, Ebionitism. The second one that uh, was uh, kind of uh, another view within the church that the, the church would have to respond to is, uh, is birthed out of this platonic dualism that we talked about. The idea that everything that is material is bad by its very nature. It is uh, evil, wicked, sinful. Anything that is spiritual has an opportunity to be good. And so flesh bad, uh, spirit good. Immaterial uh, good, material uh, bad. And so this is docetism. Docetism and then later on this idea called Gnosticism. Uh, and that was the idea that Jesus is not really a man. So Ebionites believed that Jesus was only a man, a good man, a really good man, but still only a man. Docetists and uh, Gnostics believed that Jesus was uh, not really a man. He only seemed or appeared to be human. That's what, uh, that's what uh, docetic means, to, to appear, to seem to be something. So Docetists believed uh, that Jesus had only appeared or seemed to be human, uh, but was really only spiritual and, uh, and divine. So we had the appearance. So it's, uh, it's uh, a famous line from, uh, from some uh, docetists is, when Jesus walked on the beach, he left no footprints, which is the exact opposite of the poster hanging in some bathrooms, right? <laughs> that Jesus only leaves footprints. But, uh, but that was uh, one of the things. When Jesus walked on the beach, he left no footprints. In other words, he wasn't really there. You feel like he's there. He's spiritually there. He seems to be there. He appears to be there, but he's not really there because if he's really there, that means he's human, and if he's human, that means he's sinful, right? So you see the, the implications uh, here, and so this is uh, not only docetism, which is just this kind of larger category, but this uh, in particular is played out within Gnostic theology. We've talked a little bit about Gnostic theology before, Gnostic with, the, uh, with a G, Gnostic. You can see, like, diagnostic is from that. Uh, and so, gnosis means knowledge. So, diagnosis or prognosis or something like that is learning something, knowledge about something. And so, Gnostic theology is, uh, is this uh, platonic thought, this dualistic thought 
flesh bad, spirit good. And, uh, and so this is the view that you'll find if you read like the Gnostic Gospels. You go and, uh, I mean, literally every Christmas season, every Easter season, there is some CNN special report about how there are these other Gospels that there was a big conspiracy to leave them out of the Bible, right? Not to mention the fact that they actually were written 100, 200 years after uh, the events uh, of uh, the New Testament, uh, but uh, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, and a number of other uh, books that were uh, written. And this is uh, kind of the, the idea of Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. If you've seen the Tom Hanks movie or read the books or whatever, this idea that there is this big conspiracy, uh, but they're all Gnostic. They're all the idea that Jesus is not fully human because to be fully human is to be sinful and, uh, and so it's just this idea that Jesus appears to be human. He seems to be human. In fact, in one of the Gnostic Gospels, uh, Jesus is, as a body is being crucified, Jesus, meanwhile, the spirit being, is over somewhere on another hill looking down, laughing, laughing that they think, oh, they think they got me. But they didn't really get me because I'm really here. I'm not really that body. And, uh, and so that was another uh, early uh, deficient heretical view within the church that the church would have to respond uh, to. A third one, we've talked about it before, but uh, certainly it, it pokes its head up. Although it's, it, it's officially condemned, that is Arianism, it's officially condemned in, uh, in 325 at uh, the Council of Nicaea. Uh, it it uh, continues to rear its head. In fact, uh, the, the Emperor Constantine was actually baptized by an Arian bishop on, uh, on his uh, deathbed. And so you'll see Arianism uh, pop up uh, throughout church history. In fact, it is the driving view of the cults today. If you're in, uh, you have any knowledge of Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, uh, these sort of ideas are driven, at the very essence are Arian theology. And so Arianism, although it had already been condemned, it still rears its head uh, uh, in the uh, uh, late 300s and uh, in early 400s. And, uh, and so, uh, remember, the, the essence of what Arius taught, the essence of Arianism, is uh, there was this phrase, there was a time when the Son was not, S-O-N. There was a time when the Son, Jesus, was not. In other words, He's not preexistent. He's not eternal. There was a time when He didn't exist. At some point, the Father created Him, and then through Him created everything uh, else. The Son was uh, created. And so, again, most modern cults, are, uh, are Arian. In some sense, they would say that Jesus is God, but not in the way that we mean it. They don't mean He's really the God. They mean He is a God. He is God-like, but there's a number of gods. You know, there might be uh, three main gods or a dozen main gods or whatever it might be. And so, He is God in some sense. He's God-like in uh, the difference between what uh, the Orthodox Christians confess to the Arians confess is literally just one letter. So you thought all of this weight being on one word became, what does became mean, uh, was interesting. Well, one letter separates what the uh, Arians and the Orthodox Christians believed. Homoousia versus homoousia. He is God. He is of the very substance of God, or he is of a similar substance as God. Arians believe that he was of a similar substance. He's God-like, but he is not God. So that's a third view that the church would have to respond to. Uh, a fourth one is Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism, you should have a little graphic in your handout if you got that. Uh, these are all from uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Uh, and so Apollinarianism is kind of the idea that Jesus has a human body but he has a divine uh, nature, and those two things kind of uh, mix. And, uh, and so it's, it's basically the idea that the immaterial logos, the Word, was simply clothed. When it says the Word became flesh, it means uh, the Word was clothed with flesh. He's God, but he's God that's just been enfleshed. And so only his, um, only his body uh, is... Uh, is human, not the rest of him. His mind, his emotions, his rationality, his soul, his spirit, all of those things were just divine. And the only part of humanity that he takes on is our body. Remember, we talked about the implications of that. He can only redeem whatever he has assumed. So, if he has not assumed 
human soul, human spirit, human mind. He doesn't redeem human soul, spirit, and mind. And biblically, those are very important aspects and attributes uh, of us. So his, his whole line of thought, uh, Apollinarius, his whole line of thought was that, uh, um, that if you are fully human, then you are sinful. Uh, and, uh, and so he wanted to protect Jesus against the idea of being uh, sinful. And so that's why he uh, kind of compromised and, and said that the only aspect of humanity that Jesus takes on is just his uh, human body. So he doesn't believe that humanity and deity are compatible kind of like oil and water, they never mix. And so he couldn't conceive of a way that Jesus could be both fully God and fully human. He was convinced because of the, where the church had landed in regards to the Arian controversy that Jesus had to be fully divine. And so he was willing to then to compromise on the humanity of, uh, of Christ. And, uh, and so, again, the problem with that is if Jesus is only half human, then you're only half saved. Or if Jesus is only two-thirds human, then you're only two-thirds uh, saved, because he only redeems what he assumes. By the way, there's a really good question that was asked after class uh, last week, and, and that was, well, Jesus doesn't uh, assume uh, femininity. He doesn't assume whatever it means to be female. So how can he redeem something that he didn't assume? And, uh, and so I think that was a really great question. The answer, I think one of the answers at least is, when we talk about Jesus only redeems what he uh, assumes, we're talking about the idea of essential uh, aspects of all humanity. We're not talking about individual aspects. So Jesus didn't uh, assume, he didn't take on what it means to be a uh, Caucasian male. Jesus wasn't Caucasian. He didn't assume, he didn't take on what it means to be an African-American. He didn't assume what it means to be 80 years old. Jesus was never 80 years old. All right, there are certain attributes that he did not possess. He might have been bald. He might not have been bald. There are all kinds of different things that we could say that are, are certain uh, humans share in that Jesus didn't share in. What Jesus shared in is everything that is applicable to every human. Does that make sense, the difference there? So he could only redeem what he assumed, that is, characteristics that are true of every single human, that are universally uh, true for us. And, uh, and so that's Apollinarianism. Jesus was fully God, but only partly human, just human in regards to his body. He was basically just God in a human suit, a skin suit. Reminds me of Men in Black, where the guy puts on a skin suit. And, uh, and so that's the idea there of Apollinarianism. All of these, again, are, are, they're, ha they're happening simultaneously, all right? As you are, are going through the Roman emper, Empire, uh, you, might, uh, you might be in a particular church where the bishop is an Apollinarian, or he's an Arian, or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so this is why it's going to be so important in 451 for the church to call this universal council and confront all of these divergent uh, views. The next one, Nestorianism, by a guy named Nestorius. Uh, by the way, Nestorius himself is probably uh, not Nestorian, uh, which kind of stinks for him because he's gone down as a heretic. Uh, but the, he, what he does is he lays the foundation that is going to later be picked up by his followers and leading into this heretical view. And uh, so you have a, a graphic there uh, that kind of Nestorianism is there's, there's just completely separate. They're completely separate. Complete deity, complete humanity found in Jesus, but a huge line of differentiation. It's almost like whenever you see Jesus and he's tired, that's human Jesus. When you see Jesus and he's walking on water, that's divine Jesus. It's almost like there's two different persons, right? And uh, we talked about last week how it's one person. The two natures exist in one person. What Nestorianism did is kind of divided the person of Jesus into human Jesus and divine Jesus. Sometimes he's human, sometimes he's divine, just depends on what he needs to do in, uh, in that particular moment. By the way, this was seen as the main, the particular danger, the main danger to uh, the early uh, church. It also uh, became the, uh, the origin of this test of orthodoxy, this litmus test of orthodoxy, if you will, the kind of the, the shibboleth of the, uh, the early church, if you remember the story from the Old Testament where there's a, a certain tribe of Israel that can't say the word shibboleth, they only say sibboleth. And uh, so this was a litmus test for orthodoxy. And so this is what happens with Nestorianism, and it uh, surrounds this word theotokos, theotokos. Anybody know what that means? It means God-bearer or mother of God. And so this is 
where this idea kind of comes from, that Mary is the mother of God. Originally, it wasn't meant to, to, to be this sort of veneration of Mary. It wasn't originally meant like the Roman Catholics might, might mean it today. Originally, it was just meant simply to say, when Jesus is born, he is fully God. And so, Mary is giving birth to uh, God, and, uh, and so that's the origin of that. But anyway, that's Nestorianism. You have a human person, you have a divine person. Uh, there's two separate persons, not just two different natures. There's two different persons entirely. And then the sixth, the final one, is uh, called Eutychianism, Eutychianism, which is the idea that the Son became fully uh, human uh, in unity, but sometime later the human and divine merged into a third entity. So, uh, the, the Son is divine, He becomes human, and then those two natures, over time, they react, and they produce this third nature that's not really human or divine. It's something totally different. And, uh, and so, the example, uh, an example that's often used is a mule, right? A mule is neither a donkey nor a horse. It's something that is its entire own uh, species now. It's a, a male donkey that has mated with a female horse. Anybody know what a female donkey that's mated with a male horse is called? A hinny. A hinny. It's just an interesting fact for you. Uh, but that's the idea there of Eutychianism, that uh, you have the deity of Christ, you have the humanity of Christ, and those two things have merged now into something that's not really human and not really divine, something else entirely. My first year uh, in uh, the, uh, or really my first day on the job in, in the corporate world after I graduated from college and uh, was working for Occidental Chemical, and, uh, and we produced uh, caustic soda, caustic, what's called potash, which sounds like a drug, but it's not. Um, and uh, what they're, they're really strong bases, right? So you know the difference between acid and a base. Uh, we don't really think of it. We think of an acid as being something that tears you apart, but a base will also tear you apart. Uh, anything that is too far away from seven, basically neutrality on a pH scale, whether it's strongly acidic or strongly basic, has the same effect on uh, your body. And so I'm there in my, uh, my first day on the job, and they hand me this bottle, and it has like, like three inches of duct tape uh, around it, and, uh, and they don't tell me what it is, and I'm holding it, and, uh, and they're like, oh, that's this form of caustic soda. I was like, okay, I don't really know what that is. I'm about to work here. I probably should know what this is. And, uh, and they explained to me, if I were to drop that, it would just eat through the carpet and then eat through the next level and eat through the next level. And then, oh, yeah, we would all suffocate uh, before we could even get out the door. So I thought, okay, I'm going to just hand that back to you. The idea there is it's something that's really strong because in most industrial processes, the process results in a strongly acidic product food manufacturing, batteries, whatever it might be, and then you have to neutralize that to some degree because you can't just have these strong acids going around. And so you add a strong base to the strong acid, and that neutralizes it. That's kind of the idea of Eutychianism. You have, a, you have his deity, you have his humanity, and they kind of neutralize, and they create this new nature that's neither human uh, nor divine. So those are the uh, kind of the six main uh, deficient theologies that are circulating within the early church. And, uh, and so, uh, to summarize there, I think I put this on your sheet, but uh, you have uh, the Ebionites who deny the deity of Christ, the Arians who deny the fullness of his deity. They confess in some sense he's divine. The Docetists, which deny his humanity. Apollinarianism, which denies the fullness of his humanity. And Nestorianism, which denies the unity of his natures, and Eutychianism, which denies the distinction of his natures. So you can see kind of all of the bases covered. Any possible uh, false view is covered here, whether it's denial of his deity or humanity or aspects of his deity or humanity or the unity or the diversity uh, that exists within uh, him. So these are all floating around within the early church. 300s, 400s, the church realizes, similar to what we had done with the Trinity, similar to what we had done with all of the false views that were going around regarding uh, the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we also need, now need to do that in regards to the nature of Christ. 
And so we've already done it with the Trinity in 325, the Council of Nicaea. It's now 451. They realize we need to do this, so they gather at a place uh, called Chalcedon or Chalcedon, depending on how pretentious you want to be. And uh, they gather together here in, the, in this place, and they decide we need to hash this out. We need to respond to all of these different teachings, and we need to kind of set boundaries for Christian belief. We've talked about this before. This is what creeds and confessions, statements of faith, these kinds of things do. They're setting boundaries of, uh, of belief. And, uh, and so don't think of boundaries as being bad things. That's how we tend to think of them. Think of them as being good things. Think of them like you're driving through uh, the mountains of Colorado late at night. Uh, there's a blizzard. The, the, the road is very slippery. Think about the guardrail there and how encouraged you are that there is a guardrail versus when there's not a guardrail uh, there. And so these are, uh, they're almost like the, the bumpers that you put out when kids bowl, or maybe you put them out when you bowl, right? And uh, the little bumpers there, they help. They're going to make sure, they're not going to guarantee that you're going to get a strike, but they're going to guarantee that you don't do a gutter ball, all right? And, uh, and so uh, that's what these councils and confessions are, is they're little borders that help us. They don't, they don't help us to perfectly understand the deity and humanity of Christ. They don't perfectly help us to understand these complex topics, but they help us to at least know I'm not going uh, beyond the bounds of, uh, of what is uh, helpful and, uh, and good. And, uh, and so I don't think it's helpful, by the way, for in light of this, I don't think it's helpful to say something like, no creed but the Bible. You might have grown up in a church where that was the creed. That's not in the Bible, but no creed but the Bible, because creeds are good things. They're just summaries of what the Bible says. All of these guys that we've talked about, Nestorius, uh, Eutychius, Arius, uh, Apollinarius, all of these guys that we've talked about, every single one of them said, I believe the Bible. I believe the Word became flesh. Let me tell you what that means. When it says the Word became flesh, that means that uh, he wasn't fully God, or it means that he just took on a human body. They're all saying the same thing. I believe the Bible. What do you believe the Bible says? That's what creeds and confessions are doing, is explaining what the Scripture says, using uh, language that's common to us to help us understand the complexity of God's, uh, of God's uh, revelation. So they're not trying to supplement, I'm not sorry, they're not trying to supplant the language of Scripture. They're trying to supplement it. They're trying to help explain it. They're trying to help teach and, uh, and to, uh, to correct false misunderstandings and, uh, and so forth. So the Chalcedonian Confession, I want to read it uh, uh, to you. This is the language that's articulated there in 451 uh, A.D. As, uh, as a response to all of these different uh, false teachings. And, uh, and so obviously this was, uh, this was not written in, uh, in English, but... The translation, we then, I think you have this in your notes, we then following the Holy Fathers all with one consent, this is a universal ecumenical council, they had gathered people from all over the empire and, uh, and brought them in and uh, hashed this out over the span of uh, months, all with one consent teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood truly God and truly man, of a reasonable or rational soul and body, consubstantial, so of the same substance is what that word means, coessential, of the same essence, with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial, of the same substance with us according to the manhood. And all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son, and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has been handed down to us. That's kind of that gives you a headache to read all of those, uh, all of those uh, words. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to use specific language that is going to show each of these things that we've talked about, all of these six false teachings that we've talked about, it, what it's doing is it's showing that they're false. 
It's showing that they go beyond the bounds of what's helpful for us. They go beyond the bounds of what's safe uh, for us. And, uh, and so if you want to be a Nestorian, then what you're doing is you're saying, I'm putting myself outside what is safe and good and, uh, and right. And so that's what uh, they're attempting to do uh, there. And uh, by the way, if you read it maybe five, six, 15 more times, then it becomes a little bit easier, although it's still uh, somewhat uh, confusing. So just to kind of hash through some of the things that we see there, uh, Apollinarianism. Somebody refresh our memory on what Apollinarianism means. You can consult your notes. Give me a summary of Apollinarianism. Yeah, denies the fullness of his humanity. It's, remember, it's God in, uh, in human skin, God in human suit or something like that. But that's it, just human skin, not human mind, not human soul. So look at some of the phrases that are specifically used to protect against, to defend against us kind of falling off the, the road, the icy road into the crevice below that is Apollinarianism. It says that he's perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. It says he's truly God and truly man. It says he's of a reasonable soul and body, not just a reasonable bo- or not just a human body, but also a soul. He's consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, and all things like unto us. That's Apollinarianism. What about Nestorianism? Somebody summarize Nestorianism. Nestorianism is the idea that Jesus is not just two natures, he's two what? Two completely separate persons, right? You have divine Jesus and you have human Jesus. Sometimes he's divine, sometimes he's feeling extra divine today, and so I'm going to show my deity, and sometimes he's feeling down and he's sad and he's just a human or whatever. It's just this different types of uh, Jesus, these different Jesus persons. And so there are phrases embedded in this statement that protect against that. It says there's one and the same son, one and the same son. It's not sometimes he's divine and sometimes he's human. One and the same Christ, son, Lord. It says he's indivisibly or inseparably. It says that it's not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son. You can see these phrases embedded in that. And then what about Eutychianism? What's the idea of Eutychianism? Eutychianism, remember the illustration of a mule or the illustration of acids and bases. It's two things that are joined together to become something that is neither the first nor the second thing, right? And so they wanted to protect against this idea that he's, uh, because he's, he's fully human and fully God, but those things have been merged into a third nature, which is not neither uh, human nor divine. So they say explicitly that he's of two natures, that he's not just one, uh, you know, uh, God-human nature, He's not just one sort of mixture, gumen or something like that. He is of two natures. He has two different natures. And it says inconfusedly. In other words, the, the, they don't mix together. Uh, they're not confused with each other. Unchangeably, his, his deity doesn't change when he becomes human. We talked about this last time, that, uh, that the uh, orthodox confession of the church is remaining what he was, he became what he was not. He doesn't lose his deity whenever he becomes human. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. He adds something to it, but the first thing doesn't change. His deity doesn't change. And then lastly, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. So that's just Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, Eutychianism. You could also find in there uh, language that would protect against Arianism, language that protect against Docetism, uh, against the Ebionite heresy, all of these sorts of things. So, in other words, the summary of what they, the church is going to do at Chalcedon, the Chalcedonian Confession, the summary is this, that Jesus Christ is fully and completely divine. Whatever it means to be God, Jesus is. Jesus Christ is also fully and completely human. Whatever it means to be human, Jesus is. There's not an aspect. There's not a little bit Uh, With the exception of sin, which is not something that is essential to mankind, it's essential only to fallen mankind, 
Whatever it means to be human, Jesus is. There's not some little bitty aspect of our humanity that Jesus doesn't share in, or else there would be some aspect of our humanity that Jesus doesn't redeem, that Jesus doesn't save, and that the divine and human natures of Christ are distinct, and that the divine and human natures of Christ are completely united in, uh, in one person. That's what happens there in uh, the Chalcedonian Confession. So it's the language that I think if you were to look at the church earlier than that, I think uh, that would have been kind of the default understanding. But what the creeds are really doing is they're putting uh, actual grammar to our groanings, right? They're actually putting language to the feelings that we have uh, as, uh, as believers. And so they're establishing these boundaries for us. So some of the implications... Uh, of, uh, of the Chalcedonian Confession, some of the implications for how we should understand Jesus. This, by the way, the Chalcedonian Confession is the orthodox confession of what believers believe about uh, the, the nature of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so some of the implications of that, that one nature of Christ is sometimes seen doing things in which the other nature does not share. One nature of Christ is sometimes seen doing things in which the other nature does not share. It doesn't mean it's another Jesus doing them. It doesn't mean it's divine Jesus versus human Jesus. It just means that sometimes something is true of one nature that's not true of the other nature. Jesus gets tired. Does deity get tired? No. But Jesus gets tired because he's two natures within one person. So we don't just simply, when Jesus gets tired, we don't just simply say, well, that's human Jesus. We don't have an opportunity to say that's human Jesus and that's divine Jesus because there's only one Jesus. And so certain things are true of one nature that are not true of the other. How can Jesus be tempted? Jesus is God. God cannot be tempted, but Jesus is also human, and humanity can be tempted. So uh, Chalcedon helps us to understand how this can be true, how it can be true that Jesus is tempted even though God cannot be tempted. But that doesn't mean Jesus is not God. And uh, so that's one of the implications uh, of this. How can Jesus even die? Deity, by its very definition, is life. It, it doesn't die. So how can Jesus die? Well, because he's also human. Uh, another implication, uh, that anything uh, that either nature does, the person of Christ does. Again, we don't say that human Jesus was tempted. We just say Jesus is tempted, knowing that that's uh, an attribute of his human nature. Uh, there's only one uh, Jesus. And, uh, and then a third implication, that the incarnation that is, when, when Jesus takes on flesh, that's what carnal means, is fleshly. The incarnation that we celebrate uh, at Christmas uh, involves the Son gaining human attributes, but not giving up divine attributes. We talked about that last week. That's a, a, a heresy called the kenosis, uh, the idea uh, that Jesus would give up his deity. Uh, and, uh, and so what we see here in Chalcedon is he doesn't give up uh, remaining what he was, he became what he was not. He simply adds to, but he doesn't give up. He doesn't divest himself of the attributes of his uh, deity. He gives up his glory, certainly gives up his glory, but doesn't, doesn't give up his deity. And, uh, and so um, I want to end just uh, again with a reminder of why this is important, why it's important that, uh, that we would explore things like Apollinarianism and Eutychianism and Nestorianism. You go to most churches, uh, and they're not going to be talking about Eutychianism, and uh, so why are we doing it? Well, because of the implications of each of these things. Again, this, this illustration of driving around uh, Colorado, and, uh, and it's not just an academic thing whether or not you have a guardrail there, right? If you go off that edge, you will die. Likewise, there is a, an extent to which if we go off uh, too far in either, any of these directions, then it threatens our hope. It threatens our faith. It, uh, if you pull that thread far enough, then your whole hope in the gospel unwinds because Jesus is not fully human. And so he couldn't save you, or he's not fully divine, so he couldn't save you, whatever it might be. And so I want to end with this quote. I think it's on the, the front of your page. It's from Why God Became Man, um, Cur Deus Homo or something like that. Why God Became Man by Anselm of Canterbury, I think uh, it was around the uh, turn of the first uh, millennia, so about 1,000 to 1,100 uh, A.D. or something like that. Um, and he wrote this. He said, It is necessary that the selfsame person who is to make this satisfaction for sin be perfect God and perfect man, 
since he cannot make it unless he be really God, and he ought not to make it unless he be really man. He can't make it unless he's God, and he shouldn't make it unless he is uh, man. In other words, if we lose this doctrine, what's called the hypostatic union, static is a word that means uh, nature, and so the hypostatic union, the, the union of Christ's two natures, if we lose uh, that doctrine, the doctrine of deity and humanity of Christ united in one person, then we lose the atonement. We lose redemption. We lose reconciliation. We lose incarnation. We lose the resurrection of Christ, since the sacrifice wouldn't have been sufficient if Jesus is not fully God and fully human. His sacrifice is not sufficient, which means He's not rising from the dead. So, indeed, you see, you lose your very hope. This is a thread that if you pull on, the whole sweater unravels. This is a brick that's in a wall, and if you remove that brick, the entire wall is going to crumble around. So, I think this is something that is really uh, essential for us and for our hope and, uh, and faith. So, let me pray for us. I'll stick around. Uh, if you have questions, remember, uh, if you're going to be serving uh, during the service uh, with uh, children, we'd ask you to go ahead and, and make your way over there after I pray. Uh, but if you have kids that you're going to pick up from elementary school, if you would, hold off until um, 15 after, and uh, that's when they'll be dismissed and then make your way uh, to services. So we love you. We're grateful for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for uh, the men who have gone before us. Uh, men uh, like Athanasius, who would stand firm uh, for the doctrine of the Trinity. Men uh, like Augustine, who would be beacons and lights uh, for us. Men uh, like uh, John Calvin and uh, just uh, Martin Luther, as we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the, uh, uh, the Reformation. Men that you would uh, inspire in different seasons uh, to help bring grammar to our groanings, and to help protect us from false teaching. And so, I'm grateful, grateful for uh, the opportunity this morning to consider these things. I pray that you would uh, use these truths to build our confidence in who you are and what you've done and what you've provided for us uh, in your Son, who is perfect in Godhood and perfect in, uh, in manhood. And so, may we glory in Him all the more uh, and adore Him and worship Him and uh, be grateful for Him. And as we go forth from here and consider Your Word further, Lord, may our hearts uh, be encouraged and aroused to worship. We pray these things because You're a good Father and You give good gifts, and so You've given us Your Son, and so we pray in His name. Amen.